My name is Diana Sierra Becerra, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Smith College and a popular educator at the Pioneer Valley Worker Center. This event is part of the 2018 Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series. It is organized by the UMass History Department and made possible through the donation of an alumnus, Kenneth Feinberg, and through the support of over three dozen community partners. I just want to give a special shout out to the UMass Labor Center and for the, the Center for Family and Research. As the daughter of a former domestic worker, I have the honor to introduce our panel, Domestic Workers Building Power, Past and Present. Our panelists, Linda Burnham, Monique Nguyen, and Jennifer Guglielmo, are organizers and historians. Through a collective conversation, we will explore how domestic workers have organized in defense of their rights. And the panelists will discuss the historic role of domestic workers within social movements and describe how domestic workers have imagined and built alternative feminist economies. Before we delve into a conversation about radical visions, it's important to first describe the oppression that has marked the lives of domestic workers. Multiple oppressive systems, patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism have converged to shape the conditions of domestic work. In the United States, Native American, African American women, Latina, and immigrant women have historically performed domestic labor, whether as enslaved women, indentured servants, or wage earners. Domestic workers have faced sexual violence and labor exploitation at the hands of their wealthy and usually white employers. And employers, state officials, and capitalists have conveniently devalued domestic labor, classifying it as women's work. And within this logic, women's work is not real work that is deserving of respect and living wages. Domestic workers also face the double day. In other words, they clean for wages and then go home to do the same work but for free. For all these reasons, the exploitation of domestic workers has been key to the accumulation of wealth under capitalism. Unsurprisingly, powerful sectors have worked to exclude domestic workers from basic labor protections. Key labor laws that guarantee the rights of workers to organize, such as the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, excluded domestic workers. And throughout the 20th century, domestic workers have had to fight for the most basic of labor protections, such as the minimum wage and overtime. And they are still fighting. Currently, most domestic workers are poor women of color, and many are middle-aged mothers. A large percentage are also undocumented, living with the fear of deportation. And yet, which is, what is so inspiring about this movement is that none of those obstacles have stopped domestic workers from organizing. In Atlanta, black domestic workers uh, formed a trade organization, the Washing Society, and in 1881, they organized 3,000 washerwomen launching a strike for better workplace conditions. That's right. <laughs> in 
1917, Carmelita Torres, a Mexican domestic worker, led a 1917 riot to stop U.S. immigration officials from bathing migrants in gasoline upon crossing the border. Take note on that tactic. Later, in 1968, Dorothy Bolden founded the National Domestic Workers Union of America, an organization that won higher wages. This history shatters the common myth that domestic workers are an unorganizable sector. In 1970, women of color created the Third World Women's Alliance. The Alliance was a revolutionary organization that fought to dismantle capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy, and imperialism. The Alliance demanded the socialization of domestic labor and denounced how bourgeois women built their careers off the backs of poor women. Our panelist, Linda Burnham, was a leader in the Third World Women's Alliance. For decades, she has worked as a writer and a strategist, and in 1990, she later co-founded the Women of Color Resource Center, where she served as its executive director for 18 years. Burnham has published numerous articles on African-American women, African-American politics, and feminist theory. She, bridges, she brings decades of experience to the National Domestic Workers Alliance, where she currently serves as its senior advisor. This year, she co-wrote Living in the Shadows, Latina Domestic Workers in the Texas-Mexico Border Region. And she is currently working on a book project about domestic worker organizing. The Matahari Women's Workers Center is continuing to chart the path of their movement ancestors. Based in Boston, Matahari organizes women of color, immigrant women, and their families. In 2002, Carol Gomez founded Matahari to end gender-based violence. And in 2012, Monique Nguyen became the executive director of the center. Under her leadership, Matahari became a vibrant, member-led organization that builds worker power. Monique also helped found the Massachusetts Coalition for Domestic Workers. The coalition successfully won the passage of the Massachusetts Domestic Worker Bill of Rights in 2014. Can I get an applause for that? <laughs> there are some fierce women on this stage. Yes. <laughs> And Matahari is also part of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. In 2007, 13 local groups founded the alliance at the US Social Forum in Atlanta, Georgia. Currently, NDWA is powered by over 60 affiliate organizations and represents over 20,000 nannies, housekeepers, and caregivers for the elderly in 36 cities and 17 states. That number probably has grown recently. And NDWA has the ambitious and important goal of organizing 250,000 domestic workers, or 10% of the labor force, to improve labor standards at the national level. The Alliance will soon be launching its campaign for a federal bill of domestic uh, worker rights. And in addition, NDWA has intervened in key national debates from systemic sexual violence in the Me Too movement 
to the state-led separation of families. Earlier this year in June, NDWA mobilized over 700 actions demanding an end to the detention and incarceration of migrant families. And to put academic resources at the service of domestic worker organizing, Smith College professor Jennifer Glielmo and Michelle Hofroy, is Michelle in the audience? She'll be joining us later. <laughs> oh, is she? Oh, okay. Um, just excited to see Michelle. <laughs> um, these two professors have worked closely with the Mahadahari Women's Workers Center for several years. Jennifer is an associate professor of history at Smith College. She has published on a range of topics, including working class feminism, anarchism, women's liberation. And her book, Living the Revolution, Italian Women's Resistance and Radicalism in New York City, 1880 to 1945, received several national awards. At the request of Matahari, Jennifer and her students created a smartphone accessible digital timeline on the history of domestic worker organizing in the United States. And for those past several years, Michelle and Jennifer have translated um, the timeline into Spanish with the help of Smith College students. So this project demonstrated the power of history as an organizing tool. And by fall of 2017, it was being used by NDWA and their staff meetings. And as of July 2018, the project has expanded to a much larger scale thanks to the generous financial support of an anonymous donor. The three of us, Jennifer, Michelle, and myself, are now, oh, is Michelle here? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Why are you in the back? Come in the front. <laughs> There's seats up here, by the way. Come yeah, don't be shy. It's a cozy, warm family. So the three of us are now developing the digital history timeline and creating a political education curriculum to help advance the goals of the Alliance. And this curriculum is gonna allow organizers and members to learn from their own movement history, to develop their political analysis and strategy, and to identify solutions to current day problems. So it is an honor to welcome our panel. Please give them a round of applause. So we're going to start with Linda. Um, each panelist is going to have about five minutes uh, to present their ideas. And then we're just going to have an informal conversation um, amongst us. And then we'll open it up to questions and answers. Thank you so much. Uh, many, many thanks to the Feinberg series. Uh, to all you folk out here who, who uh, decided to spend your evening with us. And very, very special thanks to uh, Jennifer and Deanna and Michelle for the incredible work that they've been doing. Um, so let's see. I've been working for a fair amount of time around <laughs> women's rights um, issues and uh, came to work at the National Domestic Workers Alliance very early on in its uh, creation and development. And I came on uh, not knowing a tremendous amount about domestic workers and uh, what the situation facing domestic workers was, 
but I was lucky because I was hired as the research director, so <laughs> uh, at the time I think there were two and a half people on staff. And the reason that we needed the research is because there's some historical record, but we didn't have, and we needed, um, data about what's going on for domestic workers uh, in the United States today. And we needed a picture that was not just anecdotal, not out of the uh, anthropological tradition or the ethnographic tradition. We needed some hard numbers, and one of the reasons that we needed the hard numbers is that this iteration of domestic uh, worker organizing has focused on one of its focuses is uh, the passage of bills of rights. Um, so the backstory, as um, Deanna referred to, is that domestic workers and farm workers, that is largely black and brown workers, were excluded from uh, federal labor protections in the New Deal arrangements of the 1930s. Um, so the arrangements that uh, had to do with uh, overtime and uh, break time and all of that, domestic workers were uh, excluded from. So we, as domestic workers, had to find, given that um, fact, we had to find a way to address at a practical level, how do you actually improve the working conditions of this workforce? And uh, frankly, when we started, I think we didn't know a lot about what came before us. Uh, we were not particularly grounded in the history of domestic worker organizing. What the, domestic, the current iteration of uh, domestic worker organizing comes out of um, immigrant organizing, uh, immigrant rights organizing that uh, became really strong in the 1990s. Um, and comes out of worker center organizing, um, hopefully folks are familiar with, uh, which had to do with uh, organizing for sections of the labor force in the US that were not being organized um, by traditional trade unions, right? So the strands kind of historically of where this iteration of domestic worker organizing uh, arose was out of worker center organizing, out of immigrant rights organizing, and of course also out of uh, awareness and consciousness of uh, women's rights, right? Um, so we were not particularly grounded in our own history, in the history of domestic worker organizing, but in the immediate instance, we were trying to sort out in the political framework and arrangement that we had, how do you at a practical level advance the rights of domestic workers, right? How do you advance the rights of a workforce that's disaggregated, um, meaning you've got uh, women working in private homes all over the country, where you have multiple employers, so kind of the opposite of trade union organizing, where you're, you have a concentration of workers in a plant or an industry and one employer, and so there's certain kinds of mechanisms and uh, levers of power in that arrangement. So what we faced uh, was how do you organize disaggregated workers 
in this uh, political environment. And so um, one of the tools that we uh, were using was what we call domestic worker bills of rights. We started in, it started in New York, uh, New York City Bill of Rights. We ended up uh, with campaigns in uh, New York State, in California, in Massachusetts, and I'm sure Monique will talk about that, where we won the broadest um, range of rights for domestic workers. So it's been a very effective tool. But along the way, um, I think we became more and more aware of the fact that we were also standing on other people's shoulders, <laughs> that uh, organizing domestic workers wasn't a new thing. Um, it was new to us, but it was not new in the history of uh, US labor organizing. And I think um, in that time, uh, in the years since, mm, I would say that, I'm talking about kind of coming on and doing this research project in about 2010, um, in, the, in these past years, I think being grounded in the history has become more and more important. And it's, uh, it's really a real pleasure to see when uh, workers understand themselves in history, when they encounter the timeline, um, when they uh, understand the examples of uh, Melnia Cass here in Massachusetts and Dorothy Bolden in Atlanta and the washerwomen and the um, women in El Paso, it really makes a difference. Um, they use the information. Our folks in Atlanta have connected with uh, Dorothy Bolden's descendants. Um, we've created a Dorothy Bolden Fellowship um, in, uh, in, on staff, which brings a domestic worker onto the national staff in Dorothy Bolden's name. Um, so, uh, and I think it was evidenced even in the most recent Congress um, how meaningful it is for folks to understand themselves in a um, kind of a chain of struggle uh, ongoing that they have a particular role in moving forward in this historical period. So the history is really powerful, I have to say. So, and I've probably taken my time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I came into the work, um, I think it came to the realization whenever I was in college, I was graduating, um, but it took me a long time to graduate because I was uh, undocumented. And I had to work literally three jobs to be able to pay uh, tuition. And um, for me, even the lack of access and information charted the course of my life, right? Understanding the context of being undocumented and also discovering that I had the right to in-state uh, to in tuition in Texas not knowing um, that I did until I had to scour historic like legal documents to find that out myself. So that, that really encouraged me to think through like all the injustice there is because of lack of information in general. And after I graduated college, I just felt like I couldn't um, move on uh, and living my life and you know, working. Um, 
without doing something because my family was still undocumented and I, I just couldn't pretend that I, I just couldn't be part of that fight to fight for, for their freedom. So I literally did the most millennial thing I'd ever done in my life. And I got on Google and I, it woke, I woke up one day and typed in immigrant rights movement. I didn't know what immigrant rights was. I didn't know what movement was. But in that really moment, I did. And I typed that. <laughs> and then the first page, there was uh, organizations in California and campaign. And then the second page was like New York. And I was like, oh, California is too scary. I mean, too expensive. New York's too scary. And the, on the third page is um, some Boston organizations. So I was like, ah. I just watched Goodwill and Hunting. Matt Damon's kind of cute. <laughs> I had a whole briefing and everything. So I'm just going to save up my money and like go up there and join all the membership meetings that I could to see where my community was. And um, I was about to give up. I went to like dozens of meetings. And I was about to give up and go home. I was literally in tears. And, um, and my roommate was like, why don't you come to Matahari's membership meeting? I'm volunteering there right now as a social worker intern. And I was like, all right, I'll take a shot. I, I went to all these labor union meetings. I almost became a union salt without even knowing what a union salt was. <laughs> and, um, and then I'm like, might as well. And I went to a, a meeting that was very small, just like this. Um, and it was kismet. I just fell in love with the fact that we were a group of diverse um, intergenerational uh, immigrant women, women of color, that were just sharing a meal and talking about our lives and surviving in general. And I was just inspired because folks were surviving so much violence as domestic workers, as, as DV survivors, as, as sexual assault survivors, and yet still get up every day and do their work with love and care. And that inspired me. And then we need, and we all deserve so much more. And I stuck with Matahari. Um, I came to Matahari as a member, then over time, I eventually led up to me being executive director. And um, I was just so inspired by the movement that was being built in, by, by NDWA and the Domestic Workers United in New York and the, all the organizations in New York. And uh, Matahari and the little humble group, three of us, we went to um, a new, uh, Northeast convening, regional convening, where it was right before they were negotiating for their Bill of Rights. And they were right, and we just came to a convening and they were rallying for the bill itself. And we were just inspired. We're like, whatever is happening here, we need to make it. Uh, real in Massachusetts too if they win and we, we we went back and watched and supported from afar and a year later they passed the bill and after that it was like a, a lit firecracker right um, and then after that um, Matahari um, helped shape the coalition and the coalition together we developed um, the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights which was done in a very participatory way we, we, need, we wanted to make sure that um, whatever was in the law was going to be reflected and was going to be real, um, really impactful. And that meant that, I mean, there's so many laws out there that people don't really have access to, right? And there's things that, um, there's bills out there and pieces of paper and legislature that don't really reflect the real needs of the community. So we had a, um, a gathering of over 100 domestic workers, the first um, in contemporary times, to uh, really brain dump everything that domestic workers of present day really wanted in the domestic workers law. Um, and it was such a beautiful uh, event because it, it was done in like three languages. Um, there was like flip chart papers and papers flying around. It was just like a beautiful mess. And um, from that, um, the notes went to the legal um, legal legal drafters and our lawyers and they started drafting the law and but during that time they also had to scour 
legal research and also history to find out what we already had access to and what we also didn't know what we had access to as a movement. Um, and they came across a letter of uh, Malnia Cass, which is a, a historic uh, civil rights leader in, in Massachusetts, a civil, uh, like a local leader. And she wrote a letter to a legislator um, encouraging him to, to support the bill that they're trying to pass um, as domestic workers trying to get uh, the right to minimum wage and overtime and the right to uh, form a union. And, and after, they find, after that letter, letter, that letter led to finding out that that bill actually passed. And domestic workers in Massachusetts had minimum wage um, and overtime and the right to form a union this whole entire time, but we didn't know about it. Because the whole national dialogue was, and because the, during this time period, maybe 10 years ago, right? Over 10 years ago, the starting of the movement was the, uh, was the heart of, in California and also in New York. And they knew what was happening in New York because they were passing bills. Massachusetts, we haven't done that research. And um, that was like our mind blown you know, moment. And um, we were, you know, the bills process took a long time and a lot of hard work in regards to organizing and going to the state house to lobby. Um, so we held that letter that, that Melnia Cass uh, wrote as like, kind of like a source of um, inspiration. Our members would put it in their purses to inspire them and remind them that we're just, we're continuing work that was started uh, decades ago, you know? So that was something that we, um, we hold on to because it's always that little, um, these little bits of history are the kind of like, um, what do you call it? Mm little catalysts whenever there's times whenever we feel alone, isolated, um, that we look to history to give us more context and more grounding and give us more oomph to whatever we're doing. So um, the work that we're doing around history and history for liberation, history, access to history is so important in these times because um, I, I really believe that our answers are really in the history, but history has been so um, buried for all of us that it's, it's you know, we have to do so much deep work to re, um, re, 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 re own it and take it back for ourselves and like discover what it means to use history for our work moving forward. Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Jennifer Guglielmo. I'm a historian. And um, it was my incredible good fortune to link up with Linda and Monique. Uh, four years ago, we just realized. Um, four years ago, there were three amazing women sitting over here, uh, Sarah Gould, Anne Delaney, Joyce Follet. Um, the three of them, and a few others, had, including Gloria Steinem, had a vision about what it would mean to give uh, the women's movement access to its history, right? There's this sense of, you know, Smith College is home to one of the greatest archives in the history of U.S. women in the world. Right, the Sophia Smith collection. And Gloria was encouraging her friends to donate their records and to um, contribute their oral histories. And there was this growing sense of, okay, this is wonderful that we're preserving this history, but what does it mean that it's up in a facility in Northampton um, where the movement can't readily access it? And so the three of them and, uh, and others kind of had these conversations and thought like, okay, well, let's see what we can do. And so we did a pilot project um, for three years, well, two years technically, but it took many years to design the project. <laughs> um, so for about four years, really, we were meeting and dreaming this up, and that's when I first met uh, both Linda and Monique. And 
we brought, uh, at our first gathering, we brought organizers from economic justice, from indigenous sovereignty, and from reproductive justice movements um, to Smith for the summer to enter into the archive and look at materials and to tell us what they were seeing and what they would do with them and also to share with us how they were already using history in their movements. And there was a team of faculty, including um, Michelle Hofroy and myself, and we listened and um, very carefully and thought about, okay, well, how, how can we help? Um, what can we do to uh, help facilitate this connection between the movement and archives and history? And we have all these resources, right? Um, the classroom, time to do research, time to study, um, the archive itself. Um, how can we put all of these resources in the service of this incredibly important uh, groundbreaking movement? So um, in listening to both Linda and Monique, the first thing um, I heard was that the movement has a solid sense of that it's rooted in African-American women's history, um, but that the movement is has changed dramatically in the last couple of decades, and there's a need for, for more histories, uh, to understand black women's history in relationship to indigenous women, to Latinas, to Asian immigrant women, and to understand European American women, and to understand the interconnections between these histories, their distinctions. Um, and there was an also uh, about accessibility. We talked a lot about, like, how do you make history accessible? And Monique's uh, first idea was timeline. Give me a digital timeline that my members can access on their smartphones. And so I thought, digital timeline? I mean, I had never heard of such a thing. But of course, Monique, the movement is way ahead of higher education in terms of digital technologies and their uses. And so Monique is like, here, I'll send you the link. So, um, uh, and luckily I had Miriam Neptune, who has uh, since gone on to uh, Barnard, um, but was at Smith at the time and really helped with us with the technology. And, um, and so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm gonna teach a seminar on the history of domestic worker organizing and my students and I will, will study this history together and we'll put together a timeline. And then Michelle said, you know, we were attending meetings and listening and Michelle said, okay, once that's done, let Monique um, pick and Matahari pick the slides that are most meaningful and we'll translate them into Spanish so that um, the, the Matahari members who speak Spanish can readily access it. So this whole, this journey was about a year and a half long, I'd say. Um, and I was fortunate to have some amazing students, um, uh, several students in particular, Ada Comstock students, which at Smith is the returning students, and a, a couple of graduate students who just um, really took this on. And so together we created the first draft of the timeline. It was maybe about 30 slides. Um, and then um, from there, it just expanded. Um, we, over the summer, Michelle and I would kind of dig into research together and um, write more of the slides. And really over the last several years, um, I've just kind of devoted myself. It's become kind of my, my obsession <laughs> is to write these beautiful slides. How do you take, you know, six texts on, you know, for example, on black women and mass criminalization after the Civil War and think of, and most of the women who are being incarcerated and criminalized are domestic workers, right? I'm thinking of work like um, Sarah Haley and um, um, there's so many others whose names are all escaping me now, right now, of course. But um, there's this incredibly beautiful literature that just came out about this and Talitha LaFloria um, and others. and. Um, and so, you know, the work has been, how do you take a body of scholarship, right? Six, seven, eight texts. How do you 
kind of distill it down to its essence, to its kernel, and um, tell a story so that somebody can kind of read four or five slides and enter into this extraordinary research that people are doing on these histories. Um, and for whatever reason, this is um, something that I, I have a skill at doing, is how to distill down these incredibly complex stories into these little stories. And, um, and it's a lot of fun, I have to say. I also, I have to say, in the beginning, I was skeptical. As a historian, I thought a timeline could, would flatten and erase nuance and complexity. And I'm always trying to plump up history with complexity and nuance, um, because so many dominant narratives right, tend to flatten that. And yet, um, I was really struck by how the timeline didn't do that. There's something about seeing an image right away and then reading a story um, next to it that has an emotional um, component right away. Um, it humanizes the history, I think, in ways I didn't anticipate. Um, and so it's been an extraordinary um, journey. Uh, we, we came last, um, last fall, Linda saw the timeline, at this stage was probably about 70 slides. Um, Michelle and I had spent last summer kind of working on it. And Linda said, I really want you to take the timeline and share it with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, of which Matahari is a part, of course. Um, and so we did a training um, virtually through Zoom. And I just shared the timeline. And folks were really enthusiastic and excited about it and began thinking of all the different ways that the National could use the timeline and develop workshops and videos. And we just all kind of exploded in our creativity and thinking about all the amazing possibilities. And then as fate would have it, um, a very generous donor saw the enormous potential that was um, emerging and said, you know what, I want to support this work and gave us a very generous grant to do it over the next two years. Um, so we were able to bring Diana on um, as our postdoctoral fellow. And so we've got this like serious team. Yeah. And um, so here we are. So thank you for all coming to hear about it. So we'll move on to the coffee talk part of the, <laughs> of the program. <laughs> so I wanted to first start with the current goals of NDWA and Matahari, and then we'll go back in time to learning about the history of domestic worker organizing. So Monique and Linda, if you could tell us a bit about the goals of the Alliance, its short-term movement goals, but also its larger vision for building a feminist economy. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of layers of this. So, um, at one at 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 one level, um, the goals of uh, NDWA are to build a movement to scale. So, the kind of conversation about how do you um, and, and building to scale ha has to do with how do you build for power. Mm -hmm. um, so the domestic worker movement develops uh, as relatively small, localized um, organizations, kind of in the nonprofit sector. It, you know, there's a Mujeres Unidas y Activas in, uh, San Francisco and Oakland, uh, Filipina Women's, uh, Filipina Workers Center in LA, 
Domestic Workers United uh, in New York. So they're organizations sometimes of 50 people, sometimes of a couple of hundred people doing fabulous work, uh, oftentimes uh, some kind of combination of service work and uh, worker organizing and, uh, and immigrant rights work. And so the first question posed in 2007, and, and, and eventually these localized projects start to understand that there's, many of them are doing similar things. There's also a backstory, which I'm sure Jennifer could tell you, about the impact of changes in uh, immigration laws on what, what the uh, demographics of people doing domestic work is. Those demographics change post-1965, right? Um, so so the, 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 one of the first questions placed in front of uh, these small organizations that start to hear about each other, you know, through movement um, pipelines, is how do we come together and form a national organization? or a national something. How do we uh, exchange experiences? How do we become more than uh, these small organizations? So 2000 and 2000, 2007 marks the point at which in Atlanta um, at the World Social Forum, 13 organizations come together, and I'm not gonna call all 13 of them, but. Um, it's important to know them, and they are written down. This is part of the history. It's important to know them because they take the step of saying, we can be more, right? We can do more, and we uh, will have more power and uh, more efficacy if we figure out how to organize together um, than we have right now, right? Um, so at that initial stage, really, the goal is to be in, in ongoing conversation, to learn from each other. By this time, both New York and California are, have some kind of legislative initiatives going. Um, so anyway, fast forward from 2007 to now. <laughs> um, the organization has grown from those 13 affiliated organizations to 60 whatever it is. Um, and so now, the organization has uh, in front of itself both the question of how to grow to scale, meaning enough domestic workers um, organize and in relationship to the organization so that we are impacting them and their power can be used to change uh, the dynamics and relationships um, in the industry. Mm -hmm. So there's one piece that's about organizing to scale. There's another piece that's really about how to, how to raise standards um, in the industry. So the whole point of all of this is um, that domestic workers, meaning house cleaners, elder care givers, um, and nannies uh, oftentimes work under abysmal conditions. I don't think we've said that part yet, have we? Okay, well, let me just say it. <laughs> Having talked to a lot of them. Uh, some, some folks work for employers who are terrific um, and fair, uh, but the main characteristic of the industry is that people are working for very low wages and for um, no benefits 
at all. Um, so the other piece of the work is trying to figure out what are the mechanisms to raise uh, standards uh, within the industry, and wh what would what does that look like? Uh, how do we raise standards? And um, from the vantage point of uh, NDWA, we are trying to figure out how to exercise a whole range of different kinds of power, right? Um, so one piece is political power. How do you exercise political power and what does that look like um, legislatively? How do you, uh, you know, change the baseline, right? Um, and that's possible in some places and not possible in other places. What's possible in Massachusetts is not necessarily what's possible in Texas, um, for obvious reasons. So there's, uh, so, so part of what we're aiming to do is figure out how do you exercise political power, how do you exercise economic power, how do you exercise narrative power? How do you change and influence the narrative about what domestic work is, um, how domestic workers are seen, um, what's the, the placement of domestic workers in our general understanding of work in the U.S.? So I'm going to pause there and come back to the question you raised about uh, a feminist economy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to use um, Linda's framework because I always, I always liken myself to be like a Matahari to be like a mini NEWA, but in a really micro level in Boston, in greater Boston. Um, particularly because uh, we, you know, and NEWA on a national level is um, really trying to catch up to, to all the rights that domestic workers are due since the 1930s, so that's why you've heard so much about NEW in the last couple years, because we've been hustling uh, locally and also nationally to make it real that domestic workers are a real political power that's untapped and invisible for so long, and it's time for us to rise up and take that seat at the table, and that's like so powerful for us to hear and, and recognize that national is like clearing the space for affiliates to actually take up space, you know? Um, so I'll talk a little bit more about like what's happening on the local level so y'all understand what the context of domestic workers are, um, are experiencing in greater Boston. Um, you know, for us, uh, I knew too that building for scale and power was something that's so important for movement. Um, you know, what do we, like for instance, whenever I came to Matahari, there was only three of us. You know, I was a formal, former nanny and two members that were currently uh, adult caregivers. We were like, what can we do with the three of us? I'm like, first of all, we can bring more people to the meeting, you know? And that's what we did. Oh, did it get louder or did I? What's happening here? Um, so awkward. Just um, <laughs> and then um, and over year over years that was our our obsession with how do we build base because we knew that for us to even pass a law and actually make it real we had to really be able to have more of us talking about it creating a buzz where it's actually part of our culture as workers that we have access to a law we have um, we have each other to support each other to actually actually like access and and fight for our wages, and also um, help other domestic workers that were extremely exploited. Um, you know, what other industry where 
where there's still domestic workers working subminimum wages for um, less than $5, and even workers that are still being trafficked into doing domestic workers here in Massachusetts. There's like literally while we're here, there's like domestic workers not getting paid for labor that there's in, there's like a domestic worker in Beacon Hill that's paid like $50 an hour. So there's, there is value to the work, but because there's discrepancy and the lack of visibility and exploitation and racism and, and uh, discrimination that allows for this to happen, you know? So we had to be able to feel like as a movement, we were everywhere and that as members and as people who knew about the law and feel like we're empowered to our value of who we are as people and as humans, that we had to be everywhere. And that meant that we had to uh, build our base. So we grew from three members to 1,100 members in about five years. Um, and we're a multiracial organization that really seeks to think about how do we raise standards and how do we build power for our membership. Um, raising standards is definitely like a hard struggle because there's also corporate forces involved. There's already this whole mystical thing around, not mythical, but invisible forces that, that you know, undermines all of our lives. Patriarchy, racism, um, uh, classism, all those things. But then there's actually the corporate forces that take advantage of these. Um, particularly, um, there's home care agencies that know this and they, they target um, new immigrants to come into the work um, and charge them ridiculous amounts of money to train and develop them to work in very like uh, minimum wage jobs on top of that. And also they have to pay for all this, this debt. And also there's, um, in Massachusetts, there's an there's a au pair agency cultural care au pair that, um, that's part of this uh, national collective of au pair agencies that recruit women working uh, from the ages of 18-25 to um, recruit them from different countries to come work as pretty much um, subminimum wage uh, nannies working in households, live-in workers for about $4 an hour when you average it out. And that's, as, that's if they only work 45 hours a week. But they are actively in, um, attacking our domestic workers' law to exclude au pairs from, from being covered. So whenever we passed the law that we also covered au pairs into their rights to minimum wage and overtime. So that means paying them three times as much as what they're getting paid now. So the au pair agency is actively attacking our domestic workers' law and trying to deny the rights of, of that basic, of the domestic workers' law itself, saying that they're not workers, that they're just here for cultural exchange their access to taking care of American children is cultural exchange in their view. Um, yeah, I can hear the scene that y'all don't agree with that, so that's great. <laughs> One step down. <laughs> and then, you know, as Matahari, we, um, we, the way that we organize is, is through building neighborhood teams where people live or work. Um, the reason why that's critical is that because of the historic invisibility of domestic workers, um, we had to take up spaces where we lived or worked because there was one moment when one of our leaders, and uh, that uh, earlier leaders, she said something to me that really sticks with me all the time, is that, you know, I go to work eight to 10, 10 hours a day, and then I go home and I just sleep at my home. I just feel like a ghost that travels from here to there and not, not having a home anywhere. That broke my heart because she was taking care of someone's child. On top of that, fighting the deportation of her own child. So, as, yeah, it just, and she didn't even have, feel like she was visible enough to even um, 
and fearful that she couldn't even share that, that reality with her employer, someone that she intimately takes care of the child. So that really broke my heart. So I'm like, how do we create an environment where, um, where we create more visibility? So from one moment, whenever this one leader that was just, just trying to you know, invite people to come join Matahari, we, our initial neighborhood team was in this neighborhood where she had been working for over 20 years. And she only went there to go into a house and leave. But we started a neighborhood team there. And um, in that neighborhood team, we started taking up space in a Thai restaurant. And on the last Friday of every month, and it grew from, uh, started with just two of our other domestic worker friends. And it, at, the, at the height of it, it was about 15, mem 15 members coming to a meeting monthly. And we did that, repli we replicated that across the um, Boston area. Now we have um, eight neighborhood teams. And the sizes range from five to 25. But that's how we are trying to um, give more access for people to join neighborhood teams where they live or work and where they can build community um, in a very low-key way without feeling like they're fully exposed, but also feeling like they can really um, um, build with each other and relate with one another. Because a lot of times workers have been, because of visibility, they work alongside each other for years without even knowing each other's names. Those, we were trying to transform the neighborhood to become a workplace, where people recognize that like, a, a, a neighborhood is the workplace. So like, you know, we called like the park, that's the water cooler where people hung out and shit chatted, you know. And when whenever, you know, people went to their homes, that was their little everyone has their own break room. So we visualized that and that helped us kind of like figure out like how do we um, yeah, how do we shape our work? Um, and you know, in the neighborhood teams, they do um, different forms of building power. Like some of them focus on narrative power where they do a lot of media work. Some of them work on getting, um, doing more community-based research to find out what the issue is in the neighborhood. There's some neighborhood teams that really focus on knowing your rights and people doing wage theft claims. So people have autonomy to build their leadership, but also to collectively as a whole build um, standards and rights for domestic workers. So I wanted to follow up on the question of the big national project that NDWA has taken on, this Federal Bill of Rights. And drawing from, you know, for example, I work at a worker center and it, enforcing legislation is one of the challenges that workers centers across the board are facing, unions, the labor movement. So I wanted to hear a little bit about the successes um, or ways Matahari tackled that question in Massachusetts and how is the alliance as a whole thinking about how do we actually make the state enforce these things or how do we educate workers so that the law is not just a law on paper but really impacting and improving the lives of workers? And then maybe we could hear from you, Linda, a bit about the long-term like, vision of what kind of economy um, is NDWA imagining. So implementation work was something that um we knew that that was when the real work was going to start. You know, like the passing the bill and everything was a struggle, but we know as soon as like we passed the bill, the first meeting that we went, okay, well, look, we're going to start the work now. This is the real work that's going to take till the end of our life because we're we we're undoing so much damage from before. You know, and. Um, 
And for us, we knew implementation was going to be a struggle. And we were, luckily, with the neighborhood structure that we built, that, that we started looking at our neighborhood teams as hubs of information and places for people to do their wage step claims. So they don't have to come to one centralized Matahari Women's Worker Center. They literally can access another um, member leader that's already trained in knowing how to do a wage step claim. So, in a, so you don't have to go to a center, you can access another nanny in your neighborhood team, you knew that they're a Matahari member. Like, Matahari, we, we like, this is our fashion uh, statement, so we, Matahari, we have a lot, everyone wears their t-shirts proudly, they're like, we have, even have um, employers that wear t-shirts too. <laughs> and so they show that they're in alignment with, with um, our values and what we do too, and that's really helpful because it creates a culture where people, um, support each other in accessing rights. Um, so that's a key thing. Um, so basically making the implementation accessible. So we have members carrying like the the, uh, the 10, top 10 things you need to know about the domestic workers law in their purses. Uh, people organize through WhatsApp. They send each other's graphics of the domestic workers law and sample contracts. Um, so those are the things that we do. And everyone has access to that, that knowledge and that training to be able to, to do that for other people. So it's not just like you have to go find a lawyer. You know, back in the day, that was like the immediate go-to now. And now it's like now go for, talk to a Matahari member. And that's, that's, you know, so that's really empowering because like over time, there was this time period when then people always came to us and asked like, can you get us a lawyer? And like, went, like, and now they're like, can you get me a contact to a member leader? I'm like, yeah, the member leader in South End is this person, call them, and then they'll handle that, you know? So that was something that's a big aha moment for us, because then that wouldn't be able to allow us to scale, right? Um, so that's the implementation question. And I just wanted to refer to this picture. I realized that we haven't talked about our folks here in the back of us. I thought it'd be nice, because we're like sitting here at the coffee table, and they're sitting here with us. Um, the reason why I'm bringing them and calling them into the space right now is this is after the uh, domestic workers law passed actually and the members were kind of feeling a little burnt out because they're like oh my gosh how are we going to implement this law what are we going to do and how are we going to do it and um and julia and i julia is the lead organizer and she's sitting on the top left over there um and then i am taking the picture and um we were struggling as as organizers how do we um, break through this frustration this moment when people were burnt out they were worried about their enorm enormous work of being able to actually make the law real and we were like um, this is at like the start of the timeline project and we talked to Mich um, Michelle and Jennifer was like can you help us find something about um, about the state of domestic workers and what they're organizing around implementing uh, during than in history to give us an inspiration that that this new question is not just a, a hard thing that we're grappling with. It's a historic, deep problem that existed before us, you know? Um, to just to give people feeling like, um, yeah, that we're not alone, you know? And they were like a history geek squad. Geek squad. We, I literally asked for this, and next thing you know, I got like emails, like this and this and this, check this out. I'm like, oh snap, this is too much. But, <laughs> but it was also exciting because like I had this question and wondering, and then literally like it was like a magic, you know, history like stream coming down. Um, and then Julia and I uh, chose some, some scripts that we thought that would be helpful to ground our members. Um, for us to have this harder conversation of how we're, how are we going to organize ourselves to implement the law. 
and to, this is a picture of us actually um, reading, um, and everyone has their own um, uh, pictures. Oh, actually, I should pull it up. All the things, ooh, out of all the things that we um, we decided to hone in on, we we accessed this uh, this book, um, Unprotected Labor by Vanessa Hay, Vanessa May, and it was about domestic worker organizing around 1870 to 1940, and um, I forgot which um, script um, we were going through, where members really felt like, oh. They're actually going through the same thing we went through, and that was in the 1930s. I don't feel that bad anymore. And that's why in that picture they were all laughing, because they're like, is, someone was flipping the papers, are they talking about us? You know? <laughs> so that was really, and after that, people had the, the we read this together in Spanish and English. And, um, and that really grounded us, because in, back in the day when folks were organizing, they were just all English speakers. But now we have this challenge of us working as a multiracial, multicultural group. Um, and um, we were using interpretation devices. This is Ingrid, and she's an adult caregiver, and she's an Afro-Dominicana. And she's using an, an interpretation devices. And then, and then this Maria Cristina and Tati, and they are, are, they are um, team captains of different neighborhood teams. So but basically, I, was just, I just wanted to pull them in. This is a picture of them reading the text together. Uh, so that's how Matahar uses uh, that work, using history in our work. First, I want to talk a little bit about a, a uh, event I went to on Tuesday in New York. Um, it was the launch of a um, product, quote unquote, called Aaliyah. And you can find out more about it if you go to myaaliyah.org, M-Y-A-L-I-A.org. And it's the result of a couple of years of work. We have a, um, something internal to NDWA that's called Fair Care Labs, and it's social innovation work, right? So it's a, a strand of the work, um, which is to try and think about, are there other kinds of interventions that we can make that will make a difference in domestic workers' lives, in addition to uh, issues around moving legislation and enforcing bills of rights. So Aaliyah um, is an online platform through which domestic workers can receive benefits. Okay, so one of the, I'm sure there are folks in here who have done domestic work and or whose folks uh, do or have done domestic work. One of the characteristics of the work is there's no retirement, you grow old, and there's nothing waiting for you. A lot of the work is paid under the table, so there's really nothing work, uh, waiting for you in Social Security. There are no sick days. If you're sick or if your, 
kids are or there's no paid sick days. If you're sick or your kids are sick, you can stay home, but you've lost a day's wages, wage, wages, and you've lost wages on a low-wage job, i.e., you're behind. Um, so we spent a lot of time, and this is, was led by someone named Pollock Shah, uh, who's on staff at NDWA. We spent a lot of time thinking about, is there an intervention that could make a difference here? And Pollock, poor woman, had been to a hundred different conferences, blah, 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 future work, blah, 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 gig economy, no benefits, blah, blah, blah. Okay, there's a lot of that, okay? Just to say future of work is an ongoing conversation amongst a lot of people who are not necessarily doing anything about it. Um, okay, maybe that's a mischaracterization, but I'm just saying. So, <laughs> Coffee talk. So, um, so a team of people spent a couple of years thinking about, well, is there something we could do here? And they came up with something called ALIA, and what ALIA is, and this is entirely dependent on um, the goodwill of high road employers, but there are high road employers, right? Um, which is to say that for each, uh, this is starting for house cleaners, for each time somebody cleans a house, you, just like Netflix takes your money automatically, Aaliyah automatically takes your money and puts it into a fund for the person who's cleaned your house. And that person can tap their, that money if they have to take a sick day um, or whatever else, okay? So domestic workers pretty much throughout US history, let's just say slavery time to the present, <laughs> have not had benefits. Aaliyah is something to, that will be launched publicly in a month to, in a practical way, address that fact. So I was sitting next to a woman at this launch, Costa Rica, she's here alone, she tries to send money home. And I start talking to her in my very bad Spanish, but I struggle. Um, and she tells me this story, she says, um, and she says, my employer was at a demonstration, somebody handed him a flyer about Aaliyah he signed me up. All it takes is a name and a telephone number. So there's nothing tracing you back to La Migra, right? Um, and she said since then she's gotten three more employers to sign up. She managed to use the money to, she accumulated somehow $600. She got her teeth fixed. Okay, so that's a big deal, right? Because their health needs that are not uh, being cared for, taken care of, um, their kids who are being left with other kids because mom has to go to work, there are days when domestic workers should be at home because, but they can't afford to be, so they're out cleaning somebody's house. So um, I'm saying that because there's, the, there's a level of this which is about how do you practically address something that's going on? 
And the, going back um, to the point about um, enforcement, uh, you all will go and go online and Google Filipino Workers Center, which has just won damages on the basis of the Bill of Rights law in California, because they say to people who are employed through agencies, you are supposed to get overtime, right? And if you have not been getting overtime, let's sue for your back wages. Um, so we're not saying that the bills of rights solve every problem, but they create a floor where there wasn't a floor, right? Um, they create a framework within which people can start to uh, try to sort out how to improve the conditions that, that we're in. So I'm just trying to tell you kind of two strands of the work that speak to um, how, do you, how do you improve conditions today for people who are working today. Um, so that doesn't address the question of what's a feminist economic vision. Um, I'm not sure we have a feminist economic vision, but if we did, um, it would include fair wages. <laughs> it would include uh, you know, people being able to retire and, I mean, we have women who are working deep into their 70s and probably 80s taking care of other old people. Um, so it would include the ability to retire in a way in a you know way that you kind of kept some dignity and had some food on the table and a roof over your head. Um, it would include uh, being able to work a reasonable number of hours. You know, there are people working uh, literally 70 hours a week. Uh, being able to, um, you know, develop uh, to have a life outside work with family, with community, with whatever you know personal human development you wanted to to pursue, um, you know dignity and value for the work, mm -hmm. basically. So I wanted to ask Jennifer if um, she could talk a little bit about the role of domestic workers in social movements. So take it away. <laughs> well, um, first I just want to say that anybody can go to the NDWA website and click on the Aaliyah, right, to make those kinds of donations. If you know somebody, as soon as I found out about it, my brother hires somebody to clean his house and has had somebody who is a nanny for his daughter, and I told him, you, this is something you can do really tangibly. So spread the news that this is a possibility um, when you hear of somebody um, hiring us, somebody to clean their house or take care of their kids or their parents or grandparents. Let them know that this is a contribution. We can all participate in creating this feminist economy um, in this very simple way, in many ways. Um, I, I also want to say that when the whole um, goal of connecting with history and bringing it into the movement is something that the domestic workers movement has historically done. Um, is something that I've, I've come to appreciate and, and have enormous admiration and respect for. Um, and this goes all the way back to, I think, when the first domestic workers have been, were organizing. Um, 
but you really see it in the tradition of storytelling, which is uh, at the heart of how domestic workers have organized and continue to organize, is by telling their stories to each other and building a sense of shared experience, of a common political identity, of even creating political agenda, right? And understanding, okay, this is awful. What do we want to create for ourselves, right? And the storytelling has been probably the most important strategy that domestic workers have used historically to, to build a movement. Um, and history, of course, enters into that storytelling because domestic workers, typically their mother was a domestic worker or their grandmother, um, and so they'll tell, they'll pass on stories from one generation to another. Stories get passed on, and, um, and it helps to frame and, under, and helps people to understand the larger context, right, in which they're, they're working and living. So this has been actually this kind of oral tradition has been a really important part of the movement history and is an important part of the archive, too, um, in many different places as, as we're discovering, right? In, in El Paso, for example, the archive collected in the 1980s the stories of domestic workers, just collected their stories. Um, all in Spanish, and um, and so that's part of the work that we're doing is is trying to get those out of the archive and give them back to the movement, right? Um, and even more um, formally, um, in 1981, as the domestic workers movement was expanding to a national, to become a national movement, right? The movement has always existed, right? Since domestic work existed and since it was such a highly exploited um, and demeaned um, labor category, workers have always um, risen up and contested that. Um, and of course, its roots are in the histories of colonialism and slavery in this country. And so, for example, when you find in a ranch in Southern California that all the indigenous women are burning down the house um, and the Spanish missions are wondering what on earth is going on, when you dig a little deeper, you realize, oh, these women were all essentially enslaved domestic workers, right? And they're using the tactic of direct action that they had at their disposal, right? The one tactic that could work, that worked really effectively <laughs> given the circumstances of their lives. So this is a tradition that extends, goes all the way back. Um, but in the 19, it was always very localized, I guess is the way to, to say how this movement evolved over time. And um, so each city has its own kind of rich, wonderful tradition and its own oral tradition too about the history of the movement. But in the 1960s and the 1970s, for the first time, a national movement emerges, and it's very deeply connected to the civil rights movement. It's led and mobilized by black women all throughout the country, Atlanta, Cleveland, New York, San Francisco, et cetera. They're coming together in national conferences, and they're sharing their stories about what's happening at the local level. And this is happening at this simultaneous with the rise of women's history as a field of study and with the creation of women's history archives. And so the movement connects with the generation of black women's historians who are also coming together at the same time in conferences. And they, they meet together. And um, in 1981, um, Carolyn Reed, who is a really significant um, domestic worker organizer in this national movement, um, establishes a project called Our Right to Know. 
um, which was a, a women's history project, right, for the domestic workers' movement. So that's 1981, and they're going into archives and bringing materials out and doing workshops and spreading these histories. And, and so we are, too, a part of this history, a part of this um, tradition. So I guess I'll end there. Okay. So we're going to take another five minutes um, of us talking and then we'll get to hear from the audience. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think are some of the lessons of domestic worker organizing for contemporary movements? So the lessons for the greater labor movement, but for folks who are organizing in different types of movements, what can they learn from the specific successes and challenges of domestic worker organizing in the present, in the past? Um, I think first of all, I, um, I, I think the first lesson is that um, people who may seem unorganizable <laughs> are not unorganizable. Uh, it is just not the case. It is the case that you may have to find a specific way and avenue and uh, forms to do the organizing, but um, you know the labor movement kept their hands off of uh, domestic worker organizing because domestic workers were considered impossible to organize. So, um, so I think that's one lesson. I think the one of the lessons that I'm learning in an ongoing way um, uh, in NDWA is um, there's a very complicated uh, intersection and very powerful intersection between making sure that the on the ground organizing is solid and that domestic workers and that uh, really careful attention is paid to um, both bringing people in and creating, and this is a lot what um, the affiliates like Matahari do, is creating what can be called ladders of engagement or, you know, somebody might wanna just come once a month, um, or once a year when you do your annual celebration. So each of these organizations figures out how to interact with the person who comes once a year, once a month, and how to identify people who want to engage more, who once they're engaged find that in the context of this organizing, it's not just that their rights are being supported, but they're, they're growing and being exposed to all kinds of things that they would not have been exposed to otherwise. So there's a real power in, um, there's, a, there's a way in which the organizing unleashes a kind of personal power um, in individuals who oftentimes, and they, they will articulate themselves, this themselves who have felt isolated, alone, without resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that, that there's that piece of the work which is, um, has to be done with a lot of patience, a lot of skill, a lot of one-on-one -on -one work, 
um, a lot of kind of keeping track of what people's circumstances are, how they're feeling, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I think um, some of the power of domestic worker organizing currently is the combination of that kind of work and appearing at the Golden Globes and being able to, uh, you know, accompany Meryl Streep on the red carpet. The point of which is not to put on a fancy dress, but that organizing in the Thai restaurant does not make the national newspaper, believe me. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> no, it doesn't make the national. It should, but it doesn't, right? But there are ways to engage the public conversation at a national level. You have to figure out what those levers are. And I think the combination of being able to do those things while moving policy and uh, creating a different set of conditions on the ground for domestic workers nationally um, is some of what I think the current round of domestic workers organizing has to offer. Yeah, and I just want to add, I think particularly as a larger movement, um, that organizations that are mostly still dominated by men like need to give space for the power of women to rise up in their ranks. Um, I, I still like even because we're so deeply um, rooted in our domestic work organizing, we're surrounded by powerful women and women organizing all the time. We see each other, but whenever we start interfacing other organizations, we see so much potential for a building of leadership of women. But because of uh, patriarchy, a lot of organizations still don't believe in, in developing the women. Uh, and also the models of developing uh, women are not the same as developing everybody else because women balance so much and are surviving so much and holding so much that you have to relate with them in different ways. So I think um, the way that women's organizing, it's so significant and relational that that needs to be amplified. And honestly, that could be um, something that's potential power for organizing all genders in general you know, because of, um, you know, hypermasculinity impacts all of us, men and women, all genders, trans folks, everybody, right? But what if we did it in a femme way? What if, what would our world look like, right? And the, another thing is like, um, during these times, uh, everybody needs to call into question everything, their role in life, and, you know, and also the work that they're doing, especially in social change organizations. If your models need to be upgraded during this time period, and I think NEWA does it so well um, to be able to shift to to the dynamics of the political and economic environment. And I think movements need to become ready to be, be able to be nimble and shift just as quickly to respond and take on opportunities for like the Golden Globes, media-wise, changing culture, creating technology, right? Otherwise, these, these corporate political forces that are really trying to kill us, you know, are, are really legitimately like gonna come down. So collectively as a larger movement, we need to learn to be more nimble and flexible and be more open and adapt adaptive, yeah. Um, as, as someone who studied uh, women's history for gosh, now three decades, I think I can, I, I, I can say with certainty that the most visionary ideas about how to evolve and develop more liberation in our world are coming from the most marginalized communities, the most marginalized people, right? This is where the vision for change comes, right? The people who have the most at stake. 
um, for whom, right, the most, the mo the, who suffer the most. And so I think the domestic workers, the history of the domestic workers movement teaches us about the, just the genius of what poor working class women, how they create um, entirely new worlds out of very, very little and are birthing, right, this other world that we all know that is possible. Um, just uh, very quickly, two wonderful examples from history is Georgia Gilmore, the unsung hero of the Montgomery bus boycott, right? Um, in Montgomery, Alabama, many of you might know, year-long um, bo boycott that domestic workers, right? This was the foot soldiers of that movement were domestic workers. They were the ones that maintained the morale, that, that helped people, that, that built the networks, that enabled, right, people to completely stop riding the city buses for an entire year. Um, you know, that required an extensive carpool system. It required money for gasoline. It re required money for security to hire people, to pay people who could be, to operate, um, to be, right, to protect people. And, um, and so Georgia Gilmore, in order to raise money for the movement, she was a cook who was fired because of her activism in the boycott. She started in her own kitchen, she started baking pies and selling them in the community. And, um, and then, it, you know, the activists needed a place where they could gather, where they, where they could feel safe. And, and Martin Luther King Jr., right, who rose um, to fame, right, as the reverend of that movement, um, he needed a place he could eat, that he felt safe, that the food would be safe and not kill him. Um, and so Georgia Gilmore's was the center, the hub, right, the cook, right? Um, and, um, and other kitchens sprouted up all across uh, Montgomery as a result. Another wonderful example is um, as, uh, La, La Mujer Obrera in El Paso, right? Um, another story of, many of you know, the rise of the maquiladoras, right, and the industrialization of the border that happens as the garment industry kind of flees New York City and Los Angeles to find cheaper, more exploitable sources of labor, goes to El Paso, opens up new factories, it becomes the center of where jeans are produced in the country and the third largest garment um, producing center in the country. Mexican women are moving in and out of domestic work and garment work and farm work, right? Those are the three sectors that they really reside in. And the women who work in the factories are having to hire um, women from across the border, um, from Juarez, to work and take care, of their, um, take care of their children when they go into the factories. And um, when the factories end up leaving, right, in the 1980s, La, uh, La Mujer Obrera opens up in 1980, and you can all Google that organization to learn more about them, but they are one of the affiliates in NDWA, and they um, occupy one of the old factories and turn it into a community center, right, that has a food co-op and an art gallery and a cafe and be begins to hold workshops on economic justice and building entrepreneurship within the community. And um, so these are just two very small examples of that kind of the genius, this genius in this movement and the history and in the present day movement that can, I think, teach all of us. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Let's give a hand. So for those of you taking notes for tactics, pies, boycotts, burn down houses, take over factories. More pies. So um, we're going to go to the question and answer period, but we wanted to invite um, Sabrina Marchetti, 
um, to the stage who's also doing amazing work on domestic worker research, and then we can kind of all have a collective coffee talk conversation. My name is Sabrina Marchetti, I'm a professor in sociology in Italy, University of Foscari in Venice. And I was kindly invited by Jennifer Guglielmo to give a, just a couple of words about the project that we are doing because the similarities The similarities and the connections are striking. Uh, it was really a pleasure. I, I'm amazed by the conversation that was here today. Thank you so much. It was a, really a source of inspiration. If someone can help me with this, because I don't find the, where is the, maybe here? Uh, yeah, sorry. No, yes. Yes. So this is just the, all right, I'm sorry uh, about that. So this is just the flyer of the project. The, the, uh, the utility of showing the flyer is simply because that allows us to see the map of the countries which are involved in the project. This is a, a project funded by the, funded by the uh, European Research Council which means mainly projects which have a lot to do with theory, a concept, and very academic research to start, to start with. However, with the rest of the team, we really try to engage with the movement as much as possible in all these countries. So this was something that we tried to do as our own methodology, and the project is indeed on, the topic of the project is how the condition the level of rights and the struggles of domestic workers are embedded in wider uh, structures of inequalities in, each in these countries. So it is a very comparative project which looks at the society more in general, the social group to which domestic workers belong, domestic workers themselves, and the domestic workers' movements. So there are different levels. And also you're gonna see how they interconnect, they build alliances within their countries, within, with other social groups, with other movements, but also at the international level. So I don't have time, of course, to show, to go into the presentation. These are just examples. I think it's nice for you maybe to see faces and images from other parts of the world, which are very related to the struggle that is happening here in the United States, which is one of the most interesting examples, I might say. I've not included in the project because I wanted to focus more on the Global South. So this is Marcelina Bautista from Mexico, Mariano Gaboja from Colombia, and these are the women from Justice for Domestic Workers UK. And the, there in the middle is a very interesting story of a domestic worker herself, the woman in the middle, who's now members of the parliament in Brussels, and she promoted a new directive for rights of domestic workers and caregivers around the European Union. 
and uh, yeah unfortunately it was not so easy to put that on the agenda of the European Parliament but I don't have time to tell you why and uh, this is the ILO convention 189 which as you may know is setting you know the the goals for the movement at the international level and this is uh, one of our conferences we had uh, in Italy it's a pity that Jennifer and I we didn't know each other before because I would have involved this project as well and it's Ajin Pu is there so as you can see from United States and this is a mix of activists and researchers and academics which of course addresses the also, also the difficulties and uh, the strengths and weaknesses of these alliances between academia and mo social movement which I think it's a very interesting connection we had. For example, our own, one, one of our first outputs was this book uh, uh, financed by Open Democracy and um, with the domestic workers themselves writing their stories. So leaders from different countries have written the different chapters and these are two of them, one from South Africa and the other one from the UK. And um, so these are photos from the trips we made around the world, Taiwan, Colombia. But this is the only picture I wanted to maybe introduce you because it speaks so much to what was said before. I, I'm amazed by the level of uh, capacity that the movement here in the United States had to bring and carry on the legacy of the women before. Sadly, this has not been the experience in the movement in many parts of the world. Italy is one of the examples. In some, in some places, the movement is very young, so just starting now from scratch, and they're in need of finding inspirations, inspiration from women from the past, maybe not domestic workers, I mean, or maybe, maybe not women that are into politics or into social movements as domestic workers, but some icons from the past. In other cases, this legacy, where could have been activated, was not activated from reasons that is interesting to maybe find out. And this is an example during our own workshop for the project organized by our local researcher. We had one researcher in each country, so nine local embedded researchers worked for the project. She invited two women, the one on the right and the one on the left, Magdalena Leon and Maria Roja Borja. And the two women during the, the workshop found out that she was doing in the 80s let's say the same, even though it's not the same, but she was doing the same that sh the other one is doing now. And this is, was a moment of really, I mean, discovering that. And both of them became very emotional, very moved by this, like you are doing now what I, uh, you used to do what I am doing now. Why, why is that? Why we didn't know each other before? Why we had to come to this workshop? to even get to know about the existence of that, what happened in the 80s, and she met in person this black uh, ref internal refugee woman who became a domestic worker. She's an amazing leader today. So this is just to, I mean, draw into also the discussion, the legacy and the uh, lack of legacy and sometimes, so speaking about the legacy. Thank you so much for this time. Sabrina, if you'd like to sit with us, please. So now we're going to have collective coffee talk where we get to hear from you and your, um, your questions. And we have about 25 minutes, right? Jess? Yes. OK. We have 25 minutes for, for comments. So I thought we could, for questions, um, maybe take like three at a time and then answer them. 
Um, I, I want to just preface this question by saying that I think it's really important to find um, creative ways to like immediately meet people's material needs, but also given like the context which y'all spoke of yourself of like clearly generation after generation of people within families being domestic workers and, and working under um, really exploitative conditions. Um, I'm just wondering like the in your response to the question about like a future economy and you, you spoke about this app um, it seems like it relies on like the benevolence of employers um, and that just seems like it doesn't really point towards any sort of structural or systemic change so I'm wondering if there ha are like other visions that you know of or that come like directly from domestic workers themselves that point in the direction of systemic change like because you also spoke about um, a consistent like gap between laws that are made to protect workers and like the actual enforcement and what those uh, what that looks like on the ground in reality for people. Um, so yeah, that's my question. Thank you. Hi. Um, thank you very much for the panel. It was really a pleasure to hear all of you. Uh, I was wondering if, uh, in your experience, or uh, if have you seen also a change in the, the households of the domestic workers that have been participating in, in this organization movement. I mean, relying on, on what Diana, right? What Diana said about the double burden that women face. So to which extent the uh, organization of domestic workers also have had some impact uh, within their own households. I love the question about sex work and domestic work because I haven't heard it before. And uh, so, and because I haven't heard it before, I definitely don't have an answer. Um, yeah, so we, uh, I mean, I'm getting ready in uh, April to go to a conference on trafficking in uh, domestic workers. It'll take place in Texas. Um, so I'm sure there are uh, intersections between trafficked sex workers and trafficked uh, domestic workers. Um, hoping to learn more about that. Um, and we have, especially in the wake of um, this last round uh, around Me Too, spent a lot of time in conversation with uh, domestic workers who experience uh, sexual assault, sexual violence, and uh, rape on the job. But um, in terms of folks who are doing uh, sex work and domestic work, that's unexplored. So it's an area for conversation. Maybe somebody else knows more about that one. Um, on the question of immediate needs that relies on the benevolence of employers, um, we definitely don't mainly depend on the benevolence of employers, otherwise we wouldn't be trying to pass laws. <laughs> um, so, but there, there's a couple of different, uh, I'm seeing that there's a couple of different questions wrapped up in that. Um, so we're, we're depending on the courage and work of domestic workers, not the de benevolence of employers, and accumulating the power of domestic workers to make change in a multitude of ways, right? 
Um, but there's a deeper question there that's not just a question for domestic workers, but a question for all workers, which is what are the limitations of change in the current political arrangement? Um, and I think our job as an organization right now in the practical day-to-day -day is to try and figure out how to really push the envelope of the possible. And frankly, the envelope of the possible is shrinking, right? That's another longer and broader conversation. Um, while putting things on the agenda that may not seem possible in the immediate, but unless we put them on the agenda, they're not even discussed. For example, Federal Bill of Rights, right? In the current iteration of what's going on in Congress, the likelihood of a federal bill of rights being passed for domestic workers is remote. But unless we start the conversation somewhere and imagine that at some point there'll be some other arrangement in Congress, it will never happen. Now that's still in the realm of the current economic and political arrangement. So I guess I would say to your question um, that I think we know, everybody who's thinking about it in, in NDWA understands that the elements of a feminist economy that we discussed previously um, are not possible within the current political and economic arrangement and that the path to changing those arrangements is not clear. And uh, at the present moment, if somebody has clarity on it, that is something besides world revolution, <laughs> um, we have a discussion to have. Um, and then just in, in terms of change in their own households, I'll just say one thing about that. Um, one of the meetings I went to just recently um, of one of our local affiliates, this was Mujeres Unidas y Activas, was um, a ceremony um, that was about uh, folks who had gone through a process of dealing with domestic violence in their own homes and had figured out how to get on to the other side of it. So there's a whole set of women up on a stage who got certificates because they had managed this. And so um, I'm going back to a point that um, Monique was making about what are some of the um, particularities of organizing women. One of them is that organizations like Mujeres Unidas have uh, trained their members to be what they call consejeras del alma, which means that they know how to talk and sit and listen to women who come to them and they may not have an answer for them, but they know how to listen to somebody who's getting beat up at home. And they know how to listen to them for long enough and they know how to accompany them to the hospital and accompany them to the lawyer, and accompany them to the police, accompany them wherever they need to be accompanied to, 
so that that woman eventually starts to figure out how do I make the kind of change in my own home so that I can reclaim some kind of power in here, right? So that's one kind of change that happens in households. Um, the, regarding the sex work and domestic work, there's definitely a lot of um, parallels, particularly around invisibility and also creation of value of that. And I know um, there, are, I don't know if there's existing tensions, but I can, I can feel it emerging if there was ever, because uh, I, I imagine as a worker center for women, for example, and that includes all women, also the future of folks that identify as women, who do work, whether it's paid or unpaid, or willing or unwilling, right? And um, I anticipate that tension, but like I'm, I'm trying to think through how do we smooth those things out, and I would love to talk about strategies, because that will definitely be, because there's already tensions around sex work in general, whether or not it's willing work and autonomy and all that stuff, and especially in sex trafficking and sex works, and people debating whether it's work or not. For us, if, there's, if someone's valuing it somewhere and people are putting energy towards it, it's work, whether or not you decide to pay for it or not, you know? So yeah, I would love to dig into that more, but I don't know if there's existing tensions within organizing work, but I, and um, but ever there was a discussion, then definitely it will be uh, it could be a very an opportunistic point for us to build power, or for us to like fall into like the the breakdown of it. So um, being prepared for that is something I'm really into talking about um, for our future as uh, as women workers, and um, for systemic change and the benevolence of of employers like. For us, like, you know, there's one, because there's multiple strategies of getting what our, our needs met, right? So there's one, com we're not fully, compo like, relying on the employer, uh, but there's one component. For those employers who are ready, yeah, there's employers that actually join our, our organization as members and, like, are open to having conversations regularly to, for them to also organize other employers. So those are employers who are ready, but there's other employers that are, like, still under underpaying their workers and, and, and insist on that. That's how much that they can pay even though they still buy Louis Vuitton purses and and go on vacations for example but um, we we find other alternatives to be able to meet material needs as domestic workers people pull in money together to create um, loan loan circles for each other people like pass the hat and and con like build you know collective support for one another and those those such things and um, the um, thank you for that question about the lives changing at home um, I don't think I document this enough, but I, I, I hear so many ways that um, people's lives shift from being involved in domestic worker organizing um, that I, I kind of take for granted and I forget because we, we focus so much on research around labor standards, all those things, but I'm realizing now that we always joke around that in Matahari organizers, like who's getting the divorce now? So that means that our members are like realizing their value as people, right? And we have, it's like, <laughs> there's always like, always someone getting a divorce. I mean, I mean as, 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 but it's also, you know, it's not like we're celebrating that, but the fact that they're coming to realization that they are, if they're being abused or, or they're undervalued or not you know, not feeling happy that they have the right and feel empowered to leave, particularly if their rights are, their, um, their work is improving, for instance, their wages are, um, are raised, so they get better pay, better work, they feel like they can financially leave their partners. That's the key thing, right? Like, most of the DV partners stay in because of financial dependency on the partners, you know? So that's one aspect, and we, we uh, that happens a lot in Matahari, and uh, depending on how the member relates to it, we celebrate it. And then um, 
Um, I think the biggest thing that touches me the most about how the lives change is that I see how the children and also the partners look at the mem the, our members differently as they rise up in their leadership, particularly whenever they start speaking, because they're so used to seeing their partner uh, doing their laundry, cleaning the house, picking up after them, cooking for them, not even getting to speak sometimes, you know, just seeing them service them all day long, but seeing them in a different light in Matahari meetings and events as leaders, and in the news, in the newspaper, in social media, people sharing and like liking their pictures and stuff, that shifts the way that they relate to their, 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 mem uh, their, their family member. And for me, that's powerful because like, there were times whenever teenagers would totally be total, total brats like coming to meetings and like giving their moms a hard time, you know, to transforming like, hey mom, when are we going to the next uh, Matahari meeting? I know that you have a talk, you know? That's like, you know, that's the biggest shift for me. And now the, some of them are hitting me up on IG. It's like, can I become a member? I'm like, oh snap, I'm not ready to organize youth. You know? <laughs> so that's an example for me. That's like the biggest transformations, yeah. I'll just add that uh, the, the movement has always been just multifaceted in its approach, right? So the kind of work to try and transform the consciousness and, act, and actions of employers is just like one sliver of, of just the complex way that this movement is uh, envisioning change. And I think what you hear in both of their answers uh, and Linda and Monique's answers are just the the power of the kind of everyday what it means to transform a sense of your own relationship to the work, right? And then how that expands out from there, right? Um, whether it's you know when we say respect, dignity, right, to honor these this this labor, the enormous importance that care work has in our current economy and has ha always had. Um, what does it mean to transform the way we think of this labor in a, as Diana introduced this, in a capitalist economy that completely undervalues, right, the most important work, caring for another human being um, that can exist. And so the movement is really working on that kind of fundamental level to shift consciousness um, among its members and then the world at large, right? I mean, the fact that we're all sitting in this room today, here right now, talking about this is thanks to the movement itself, right? And so I encourage you to just think about movement in really, in really subtle and dramatic ways, right? Um, social change happens, right, when people take to the streets, but it's also happening in, these in the ability to listen in a company, right? The power of that, what that means to, to be accompanied and to accompany another person and the profound possibilities that exist just from that ex simple, what seems so simple as an expression, but that is a political expression, right? That, that moment is birthing new possibilities. Um, and I think that's what this movement teaches us, is that social change is gonna happen on all these different levels. Um, and the movement itself knows that intimately, and as a result kind of works, whether it's working with a legal dimension, right? Suing, right? Using the law to sue, or whether it's building economic justice by pooling resources, right? Or, um, or th rethinking what it means to care in communities, right? C more collectivist kinds of approaches to care, too. Um, so, so, yes, so many different approaches, many different sources of inspiration. So, I just want actually to give 30 seconds to that question. I think that from the history of black feminism and Latin American revolutionary feminism, there in the 70s and 80s, there was an imagination around in their, some rhetoric abolishing domestic work, 
in the sense of socializing domestic work and it having to be a collective social responsibility. And so that was the vision, but obviously the, how, the strategy and how you build toward the socialization of domestic labor so that it's no longer privatized in the home and where some women can buy their way out of that labor is a whole other question. And it's, it's happened on small and big scales from women um, establishing cooperatives and having community-run childcare centers to in more revolutionary situations, entire territories being run by workers' councils where workers are making decisions about the economy together and childcare centers and uh, cooking food becomes key to those projects. So we could learn definitely from those examples, but um, obviously it's always a big question of how do we bridge revolution and reform and make sure that they're not binaries, but that they're actually informing one another. Um, so with that, I'll uh, maybe open it up to, we can take maybe like oh, one, two more questions. Hi, <clears throat> I'm not used to mics. Um, hi, uh, I guess my question is kind of looking toward um, like I understand that the groups you work with have like uh, city levels and national levels, but I guess my question is sort of geared toward the possibility of international levels of organizing with domestic workers. Um, speaking mostly from the experiences of my family members, uh, my family, are they are immigrants from the Philippines and a lot of the reasons that they established ground here was coming as domestic workers because that's a very big part of the Filipino economy and it's almost common nature for them to share stories of different kinds of violations of human rights and abuses in their experiences working in other countries. So I guess my question just pertains to, are there any um, efforts within your groups to reach out to more international groups and organize internationally with domestic workers? So I am, I'm currently a master's student here in the labor studies department, and I'm doing my research on um, online forums or online places where folks from the Indian diaspora post um, need for care or as care workers they post needs and I was wondering if there's other online spaces like that and like what kind of because I've seen on those same websites like people from Seattle posting like here are your Bill of Rights um, things like that and maybe like what we can do in Massachusetts um, on forums like that or on websites like that. Yeah, um, great question, both of them. Uh, on the international piece, we have been, as uh, National Domestic Workers Alliance, um, were uh, among the founding members of the International Domestic Workers Federation, which um, I'm lucky enough to be getting ready to get on an airplane in two weeks to go to their meeting and that's gonna take place in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, and um, so there are two things, I, I guess the two things I wanna say about that. One of them is that uh, we should be super explicit about the fact that a lot of the leadership of this iteration of domestic worker organizing comes from folks who were organizers in their home countries. 
and who learned how to organize in their home countries and brought those skills here and have made huge contributions to the social justice movement in the US coming from all over the world, Philippines, Mexico, Central America, all over the world. So that, that's an, and, and when you talk to people, you hear, yes, I was a, I organized a coffee cooperative in wherever the heck, yeah? So um, people have been bringing their skills, organizing skills here and, and um, lending them to the domestic worker movement. And um, the, there's a whole book, what's the name of the book? Domestic Workers of the World Unite <laughs> by Jennifer Fish, who's at uh, Dominic, Dominic uh, okay, you've got enough. Jennifer Fish, Workers of the World Unite. She's written a whole book about the campaign to uh, pass Convention 189, Domestic Workers' Rights. Uh, many uh, nations have signed on to this convention, not ours, unfortunately, and that's a whole uh, long and interesting story. But um, I really recommend that book. Uh, maybe sometime the Labor Studies Department here could invite her. She's brilliant. She's got all kinds of visuals. She's done movies, photographs, and this terrific book about domestic worker organizing. And we just went through a whole process internal to the our organization, wherein um, the workers uh, nominated the, our delegate to the Council of the Federation, who's an Afro-Honduran named Hilda out of um, Seattle, who helped lead the struggle for the Seattle Bill of Rights. So it's uh, that international organizing is a really important learning opportunity for domestic workers, and it's a really import increasingly important force in terms of international um, work. And that other question I was, just remind me quickly, Oh, yes, briefly. Online organizing is um, increasingly an important part of our work. So it's both about trying to figure out how to, um, how to engage um, domestic workers through Facebook forums. So a lot of our affiliates do that, and the national organization also does that. Um, and the other piece, which I'm not going to have time to talk about, is that increasingly domestic workers are um, finding work through online platforms. That has a whole trail of complications um, related to it, but it poses new organizing challenges for us, for people who are finding their work through Handy or TaskRabbit or whatever the heck. So yes, there's organizing through uh, online um, forums, uh, and the work is being transformed in many cities um, through these platforms. Yeah. Um, around transnational organizing, definitely. Um, 
well, two key organizations that I really look up, look up to in the United States that's doing like very um, innovative uh, transnational organizing work from of uh, Pinoy's of Filipino of workers, uh, Filipino Worker Center in LA, and also Damayan Migrant Workers Association in New York. And um, particularly Damayan has this wider lens that talks about that the economy of the Philippines relies on remittances from people who are trained and exported from the Philippines to go work all over the world. And what is the accountability of the Filipino government of the, the safety and protection of the rights of workers that are abroad, right? In the fact that they're relying on their economy. Because right now, there's an epidemic of deep violence is happening of domestic workers in Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, and the ones that do escape end up in like our organizations. We have two cases right now that we're trying to uplift, like the Saudi Arabian also government needs to be held accountable to the protections of workers there because they're experienced like murdering of domestic workers because they don't do something properly. You know, and there's like, there's atrocious uh, discoveries of employers harboring multiple of them and their bodies being buried underneath the building, for example, you know, a trigger warning. I'm sorry, but it's a reality of domestic workers to this day, and it's a big question. Particularly for Filipinos, it's, it adds to that um, Asian invisibility of, of our struggles in general that, that doesn't talk to, talked about much because we also are very, like, culturally, um, want to be hush-hush on these realities too, but that also harms us at the same time. So I want to uplift that, that work is happening, but it definitely needs to be amplified as a larger movement because other workers are also coming through that pipeline as well. We've had African members come through Egypt, uh, just like Filipino workers come through Egypt, that they share those same experiences as, as they are recruited. And online organizing is so key. Like uh, Facebook is like where is that right now? Particularly organizing folks who are under the age of fifty for the most part. Um, Facebook groups. I like we really we're connected with like like twenty Facebook groups that we have to post to every time we have an event. So there's like thousands of workers that like if something happens, people spark a group and like dozens or to uh, thousands of people are added like overnight sometimes. So it's such a key way, but strategizing about how to deeply engage is another thing. How do we get people offline to actually actionable mm -hmm. and um, doing deeper work is the key, bigger question that we have to talk about, yeah. I can say a couple of words about the international level and then also on the sex work and domestic work at the point. So the international level is it's very important for the reasons that have been said, especially for countries where there was not a domestic workers movement that, that legitimized the process in front of the institutional actors there. So look, this is happening in Geneva, this is happening in other countries, etc. The Filipino experience, however, is an is a even more interesting example because it's the case in which because of the violation of rights of domestic workers from the Philippines in the diaspora, the government is kind of forced to negotiate better labor rights for these workers, also for reason of international diplomacy. So domestic workers are really used in negotiations at the diplomatic level, even for other reasons, even instrumentally in a sense. But this falls back in a positive way into having to improve the level of rights of domestic workers in the Philippines, Filipino domestic workers in the Philippines, which all of that is not an easy goal as such, I mean, then the struggle in the Philippines of the organizations there is really fierce, if you want to say. It's not obvious at all. The, and then, um, 
But at the same time, when we look at the international organizing of domestic workers, another important actor are international NGOs. Mm? So for example, a very important actor is CARE, the NGO of US, US-based NGO that is acting, especially in Latin America, promoting domestic workers' organizations, supporting them, or even international trade unions like ETUC, for example, European or international trade unions. So this international organizing is also the testifies how today domestic workers' organizations do not happen in a vacuum, are not isolated actors. Can be with academia, can be with other organizations, can be with trade unions, can be in some cases with institutions. It, it is a movement which is characterized by a strong porosity. Hmm? It needs a porosity. And employers, they're an important actor a difficult one, but important, because if you don't have a, a employers' organizations, you cannot have collective agreements. You need to have the counterpart. So in countries in which employers do not come together as an organization, the, the movement is stuck, like in Colombia, for example. They do not find employers, even good-willing employers, hypocritical employers, <laughs> whatever, but they do not find employers that come together into sitting at the table with the government in order to sign the agreement. And uh, on the uh, sex workers and domestic workers, I, I think this is an, a, a case in which there is a tension between what the academia or like our research questions as a feminist scholars are and what the questions for the movements are. Because the kind of continuum that you can see in all uh, commodified reproductive work which uh, might lead to also claiming rights for these workers, sex workers, domestic workers, midwife, nurses. We can make a list of all types of work which come from the reproductive sphere into the market. This same, this same continuum is not seen by the part of the, the workers themselves and the movement of the workers. For example, boundary making between sex workers and domestic workers is huge, is enormous, like drawing boundaries between the two at the level, not only, I don't say only the movement, but the workers themselves. Although, when you speak with others, they might tell you that maybe on weekend they do sex work, and on, on weekdays they do domestic work, or their sister does sex work, and she decided to do domestic work. Their mother was doing domestic work, she does sex work. So in real life, there is a strong mixing which is not portrayed by the movement or by the, like, the discourse which is shared. And the anti-trafficking point is a very important moment of maybe unsettling these dichotomies, but I'm afraid that this is, has been done too much at the level of policies and institutional intervention and not so much at the level of movement, but we have to see in the future what will happen.